If you've got your Bibles, and I hope that you do, please turn in them to the book of Acts. If you don't have a Bible, we've got pew Bibles in the uh, foyer. And if you don't have a Bible at home, that is our gift to you. Please take that home. But turning your Bibles to Acts chapter 1, last week we began our study through the book of Acts. Jesus gathered with his disciples over a period of about 40 days from his resurrection to his ascension. He passed the baton to his disciples. He gave them their marching orders. He gave us our marching orders to be his witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the ends of the earth. And then he was gone, and the starter's gun went off, and the race has begun. And so now we expect in this very next passage to see the disciples beginning to in this mission, but we don't. In fact, there's no running at all in the remainder of chapter 1. There's just waiting. All they're doing is waiting. They go back to Jerusalem, back to the upper room, and they wait. But as we recall from last week, that's exactly what Jesus told them to do. To go back to Jerusalem, back to the upper room, and wait for the promise of the Father, the Holy Spirit who would come and empower them for the race that they were to run and empower them for mission. So in this passage, that's what they're doing. They are waiting. But as they wait, we begin to see unveiled some of the defining characteristics of the earliest church. And these defining characteristics, we would do well as the church today to strive to see them emulated in our fellowship as well. So let's read Acts 1, beginning in verse 12 and continuing through to the end of the chapter. Then they returned to Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day's journey away. And when they entered, they went up to the upper room where they were staying, Peter and John and James and Andrew, Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew and Matthew, James the son of Alphaeus, and Simon the zealot, and Judas the son of James. All these with one accord were devoting themselves to prayer, together with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and his brothers. In those days, Peter stood up among the brothers. The company of persons was in all about 120, and said, Brothers, the scripture had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit spoke beforehand by the mouth of David concerning Judas who became a guide to those who arrested Jesus. For he was numbered with us and was allotted his share in this ministry. Now this man acquired a field with the reward of his wickedness, and falling headlong, he burst open in the middle, and all his bowels gushed out. And it became known to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, so that the field was called in their own language, Akeldama, that is, the field of blood. For it is written in the book of Psalms, May his camp become desolate, and let there be no one to dwell in it, and let another take his office. So one of the men who have accompanied us during all the time that Jesus went in and out among us, beginning from the baptism of John until the day when he was taken up from us, one of these men must become with us a witness to his resurrection. And they put forward two, Joseph called Barsabbas, who was also called Justice, and Matthias. And they prayed and said, You, Lord, 
who know the hearts of all, show which one of these two you have chosen to take the place in this ministry and apostleship from which Judas turned aside to go to his own place. And they cast lots for them, and the lot fell on Matthias, and he was numbered with the eleven apostles. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for the privilege and honor of worshiping you as a faith family this morning in song and in prayer and in the elements of your son's body and blood. We pray now, Father, as we continue in a spirit of worship that you would speak to us from your word, that you would bless and equip the saints gathered here for the mission that you've set out for us, and that you would intersect the life of every person who has not placed their faith in Christ with the gospel of Jesus Christ this morning. Father, may you be glorified in every single word that is spoken out of my lips. And Father, that which is not in accord with your word, may it fall on deaf ears. But that which is in accord with your, with your word, Father, may it be driven deep into our soul so that we might be a faithful church engaging in the mission that you have put us on. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So as you kind of see from this passage, there are really two sections to it. The first in verses 12 through 14 show us the disciples waiting. And as they wait, we'll be able to unpack three defining characteristics of the earliest church. And then in the remainder, the bulk of this passage, verses 15 through 26, we're going to see the disciples as they replace Judas with Matthias and replacing him as one of the apostles because of his betrayal. And in unpacking that, we will see a fourth characteristic of the early church. But why do we have this story about them waiting in Jerusalem and about them replacing Judas with Matthias? And I don't mean why do they wait and why is there a time of waiting, but why is this recorded for us in the scriptures? In the first eight verses, Jesus gives the disciples their mission. Be my witnesses here, there, and everywhere. And he says, go back to Jerusalem and wait for the Holy Spirit to empower you. And then beginning with the passage in chapter 2 that will begin next week, the Holy Spirit comes and empowers them for mission, and they begin running their race. And so why do we have this story here about them waiting and about them replacing? Is it just about learning about the fact that they waited? And is it just about the fact that they replaced Judas with Matthias? Or is there something else that we're to learn from this? I believe it's because these descriptions of the early church, these defining characteristics that we'll unpack here, are the markers which mark out the lane or the path in which we are to run our race. If you've ever watched track and field, you know that there's not just a starting line and an ending line. There are also lines in the track itself. There are lanes in which the runners are to run. And they're disqualified or penalized if they go outside of those lanes. The, the purpose of those lanes is to show them how to run and where to run and that they can't make up their own lane from the starting blocks to the finish line. Well, church, we've been given the baton. It was handed to us last week by Jesus, by, by the hands of the apostles and, and those who have run legs in this race before us. 
And we have our finish line to be witnesses of Jesus in our Jerusalem, our Judea, our Samaria, and to the ends of the earth until Jesus comes. But we also don't have to guess from, about how to get from point A to point B. Because we don't make up our own lane in getting from the starting line to the finish line. These characteristics of the early church mark out the lane for us. These characteristics show us how we are to get from the starting blocks to the finish line. And again, these lanes will be reinforced and developed as themes as we make our way through the book of Acts. So the first defining characteristics that we see here is, is obedience to Jesus. In verse 12, they returned to Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day's journey away. And why do they return to Jerusalem? Because that's exactly what Jesus told them to do. Back in verse 4 from last week, we're told by Luke that he ordered them. Literally, he commanded them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father the Holy Spirit. Don't leave Jerusalem, he says. Now, now verse 12 says that they return to Jerusalem, and both can be true because where they were at the Mount of Olivet was just a Sabbath day's journey away. According to Levitical law, the, the Jews were only allowed to walk a period of up to uh, 2,000 cubits on the Sabbath in order that it not be called work. 2,000 cubits is just over a half a mile away. And so it's just outside of Jerusalem. And Jesus says, go back into the city. Wait there for the promise of the Spirit. And so they're obeying Jesus' command. As Jesus said in Luke 24, stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. They obeyed Jesus when he was with them in his earthly ministry, and now they're obeying Jesus still when he's not with them and he has ascended. And this is going to be a theme that we'll see about the early church, and it'll be developed by Luke all throughout this book. Church, to be a follower of Jesus Christ, it is fundamental that we be obedient to Jesus Christ. The Great Commission that we quote over and over and over again, is to make disciples of all nations, baptizing them, and what? Teaching them to obey all that Jesus commanded. Now consider some of the commands that Jesus gave us during his earthly ministry. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. He went on from that. He said, love your enemies and pray for them. He said, make disciples of all nations. Re repent of your sins. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. Come to him for rest. Take his yoke upon you. Render unto Caesar what is Caesar's and render unto God what is God and so on and so forth. Friend, if we are to faithfully run our race, then we need to stay in our lane. And our lane is marked out for us by the commands of Jesus. Our lane is to be characterized by obedience to Jesus. Now, why do we obey him? Because we love him. Not out of an attempt to try to earn his favor, 
or appease his wrath against our sin. Not at all. No, no amount of obedience on our part will ever remove the stain of our sin. The stain of our sin can only be removed through repentance of sin and faith in Jesus Christ as our substitute. Trusting that it is His obedience and His obedience alone that is effective in our salvation, not ours. But having been given eternal life, having been forgiven of our sins and and reconciled to God, now we want to demonstrate our love for God and our allegiance to Him by obeying Him. Jesus said Himself in John 14, If you love me, you will keep my commandments. John wrote in 1 John 5, 3, For this is the love of God, that we keep His commandments. Now church, we're not going to do this perfectly. We're going to still mess up. We're still going to to fail from time to time in seeking to be obedient to Jesus. We're still going to need ongoing grace in our life. But as followers of Jesus who love Jesus and are growing in our love for Jesus and are growing in Christ, we ought to be more and more characterized by obedience to Him. Are you characterized by obedience to Jesus in your life? Are you growing in your obedience to Jesus? Is there an area in your life this morning in which you're not being obedient to Jesus? If so, then why not commit to him this morning to set aside that disobedience and learn how to walk in obedience in that area by learning to love Jesus more and demonstrating that in your obedience. Church, are we as a church obedient to Jesus? Are we following his commands? Are we growing in our obedience to the Lord Jesus Christ? Are we making disciples of all nations? Are we growing in our love for God and neighbor? Are we seeking first the kingdom of God and his righteousness? The earliest church, this This nascent church that was still uh, in utero, it it was still in the process of coming into existence, was already characterized from the very beginning by their obedience to Jesus. And I pray that we would be as well for God's glory. What else? What other defining characteristics do we see here? In verse 13, all of the remaining apostles besides the betraying Judas Iscariot are listed. And then Luke records for us in verse 14, all these with one accord were devoting themselves to prayer. So the second defining characteristic is their unity. And the third defining characteristic is their devotion to prayer. And we see them both there in verse 14. First, their unity. Luke writes that they were all in one accord. And of course, the very first dad joke I ever learned about the Bible was that Honda is the official manufacturer of cars in the early church because they were all in one accord, right? It was a dad joke, yes. (laughs) But what does it mean that they were in one accord? 
We talk a lot about community here at New Branch. It's our middle name. One of the words that we refer to a lot, New Testament words that we refer to when talking about community is koinonia. And we, we've talked about how that word means that in Christ we are literally part of one another. That we are mutually, that we mutually belong to one another in our union with Christ. But this is a different word that is used here. And it's a very interesting Greek word. It's the Greek word homothumadon. And it's a compound word that combines first the Greek word that means same or, or together with the Greek word that means passion, referring to enthusiastic emotion whether it be wrath or excitement or love or whatever the emotion is, enthusiastic and energetic emotional attachment to someone or something or some idea. And so these apostles were in one accord. They were united. They were together. They were the same in their passion. And what was their passion? I believe it's clear from the context here that their passion was Jesus. They loved Jesus more than anything. It was their passion for Jesus and it was their passion and their fervency for the mission that Jesus had given to them. They were in one accord in those things. And if a church can be in one accord with one another in those areas, united in their passion for Jesus and united in their fervency for mission, then that is a church whose unity will stand the test of time and will remain united even in the face, as we'll see, of persecution and suffering. But if a church is not united in these areas, then, friend, the very smallest of things can cause disruption and disunity in the body. If we are not united in our passion for the Lord Jesus Christ and, and marked by a fervency to engage in the mission that he has given to us, to be his witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth, then, friend, molehills will become mountains. And we will be divided and see discord in our fellowship because of the most seemingly insignificant of details. And when that happens, no amount of striving for unity is going to make any difference at all. You see, because being in one accord, this kind of unity that is described here is not something that you can pull off the shelf and shake a little bit of it into the body of the church, into the life of the church. No, being in one accord is a byproduct of encouraging, of pursuing and encouraging others to pursue an unquenchable desire to know and love Jesus more fully. And when we know and love Jesus more fully, we will engage in his mission more faithfully. And then we will be in one accord. So what does this mean for us? Well, this means that the unity of the church is in large measure 
dependent on us, dependent on you and I, encouraging one another to grow to love Jesus more deeply, to be delighted in the Father more intimately and more wholeheartedly, and to demonstrate that in our obedience, in our fight against sin, and in our engagement in the mission that he's given us to make disciples of all nations. Now, as I consider where we are as a church right now, I think we're in a real sweet spot. I believe that we're seeing God grow our passion for Jesus. And we're seeing him light a fire, light a fire for us to engage in mission. And I think that's why we're just enjoying right now a a real sweet time of unity in our church. But church, let's don't take that for granted. Let's continue to spur one another on in these areas. And and let's ask the Lord, let's plead with the Lord to fan that spark of being on mission for Him into a flame of fervency to take the gospel to the nations. So then their unity, their, their being in one accord gets expressed and it's expressed in their devotion to prayers. That's the third defining characteristic. Their devotion to prayer. Prayer along with obedience to Jesus and along with being in one accord are themes that are going to be developed all throughout the book of Acts as it's returned to over and over again. In fact, in the very next chapter, in chapter 2, we'll see uh, this early church now exploding in growth in Jerusalem still devoting themselves to the prayers. I wonder what they prayed about in this setting here in Acts 1. Jesus had just left them. After walking with them for years, he had just left. And before leaving, he laid on them the greatest mission that had ever been laid on man, to take the good news of Jesus Christ not just to this city, as tough as that would be, as dangerous as that would be, but beyond this city to, Jeru- to Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Friend, I don't think their prayers would be limited to praying for things like Aunt Bessie's bursitis and Uncle Herschel's gout. Not that that's a bad thing. You can pray for Aunt Bessie's bursitis and Uncle Herschel's gout. But when you love Jesus as much as these guys did, and when you're sold out and convinced that your king has laid on you the most awesome mission, the most impossible mission that man has ever received to take this good news of Jesus Christ to the ends of the earth, you're probably going to be praying about some other stuff as well. Lord, we love you so much. And we already miss you. And Lord, we can't wait for you to come back as you promised. And Lord, we're sorry for our doubts. We're sorry for our cowardice. We're sorry that we didn't stand up for you more. And Lord, we know that you have laid on us this mission to take your good news to this city. And to Judea and to those supposed enemies in Samaria. 
and even to places like Antioch and Corinth and Rome. And Lord, we don't know how to do that. We don't even know where to start, Lord. We don't know what to say. Lord, would you, would you send your Holy Spirit like you promised? Because we are desperate for power and wisdom and discernment and strength. We can't do this without you, Lord. Lord, help. Please help, Lord. I think that probably characterized some of the spirit and tone of their prayers. Church, as we grow in our love for Jesus and our desire to see him glorified in our lives and our, our fervency to take the gospel to the nations, we will be driven to our knees. And we'll be driven to our knees together to beg him for help, for strength and courage, for wisdom and discernment, to know the words to say and to whom we ought to say them. What marks your times of prayer in your base group? What marks those times of prayer? Are they characterized by maybe what we could call housekeeping, illnesses, busy weeks? Or are they characterized by fervent pleas to God that he might help us grow in our love for him? And in our fervent engagement in his mission while he has breath in our lungs. The earliest church was characterized by these things. Obedience to Jesus. Unity and being in one accord, particularly in their mission. And their devotion to prayers. But there's one more defining characteristic and it comes in the second part of our passage in verses 15 through 20, changes the focus of the passage from their waiting there in Jerusalem to their process and work in replacing Judas with Matthias. Peter stands up, he addresses the small company of believers there. We're told that it's about 120. That number is important because that is the smallest number according to Jewish custom for which you would need a counsel in order to lead them and guide them and, and offer judgment for them. And that's what the apostles will do and be. So Peter stands up to lead in this process. And by the way, what an amazing picture of grace Peter is here. What a picture of grace this is. Just a mere 40 some odd days earlier, what was he doing? He was denying that he even knew Jesus. That was prophesied by Jesus himself as they had gathered in this very same. And Jesus prophesied, Peter, you're going to deny me three times. And that was prophesied among the company of the other apostles. And that ominous prophecy was fulfilled when, when Peter cowered in front of a little girl who had said that she noticed that he had been with Jesus. I never knew him, he said. And in the distance, a rooster crowed. Imagine the shame he must have felt in front of the other apostles. But now, not six weeks later, here he is standing up among them, leading in the process of, 
of what is, can best be described as the very first church business meeting, leading in this process. What a picture of grace Peter is. And what does Peter say when he stands up? Well, to paraphrase it, he says, Judas is gone and he's got to be replaced. And so he gives the requirements for being an apostle. The fledgling church weeds out several candidates and comes up with two who meet the criteria. They cast lots. The lot falls on Matthias and Matthias gets added to their number. And so Judas is replaced with Matthias. Is that it? Is that all we're supposed to get from this passage? Of course not. Just as learning that the disciples waited is not all that we're supposed to get from the first part of this passage. See, in verses 12 through 14, the the focus is not on the fact that the disciples waited, but on how they waited obediently, in one accord with one another, and devoted to prayer. And now in verses 15 through 26, the focus is not on the fact that they replaced Judas, but how they replaced Judas. And in unpacking the how, we'll find a fourth characteristic of the church, namely their unflappable confidence in God's infallible word and in God's unstoppable purposes. Their unflappable confidence in God's infallible word and God's unstoppable purposes. That's what we'll see here. Now let's track back through this story a bit more closely so that I can show you where we see this. What does Peter say exactly when he stands up? Verse 16. Brothers, the scripture had to be fulfilled. Full stop. The scriptures had to be fulfilled. When the scriptures said something was going to happen, it had to happen. It was going to happen. What scriptures? He tells us, the scriptures which the Holy Spirit spoke beforehand by the mouth of David concerning Judas. And so we see here Peter expressing an unflappable confidence in the inspiration of God's word by the Holy Spirit. He tells us how the Word of God is inspired through the Holy Spirit speaking through the human author. Peter himself would later write in his second epistle, 2 Peter 1 verse 21, For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Peter knew that while it was David who wrote these psalms that he's going to quote from, David wrote them under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. For Peter, the scriptures were the very breath of God. And when the scriptures said that something would happen, he took it as gospel truth. It was going to happen. It was not if, but when. Next, we see that Peter was confident also in God's sovereignty. That that God not only knew what would happen, but he would make it so. Even when things seemed like they were a mistake. And evidence of this, Peter says that the Holy Spirit spoke beforehand by the mouth of David concerning Judas who became a guide 
to those who arrested Jesus. Judas was no accident. He was no aberration on, in God's otherwise perfect plan. He was the plan. He was a part of the plan. In his divine wisdom and sovereignty, God intended that the means by which his son would be turned over to the authorities and crucified for the, for the sins of man, God intended that the means by which that would, be, that would happen would be through the kiss of a betrayer, Judas. John MacArthur, who wrote his dis- dissertation about Judas Iscariot, says, quote, Jesus' choosing Judas was no accident. Long before Judas was ever born, his hatred of Jesus Christ was planned by divine design, predestined in the plan of God from eternity past, unquote. Jesus, in his high priestly prayer in John 17, on the night in which Judas betrayed him, He prays to the Father and says this in John 17, verse 12, while I was with them, that is, while I was with these apostles, the disciples, I kept them in your name, Father, which you have given me, and I guarded them, and not one of them has been lost except the son of destruction that the scriptures might be fulfilled. And so as Peter stands up to to lead this fledgling church, in its first ever members' business meeting, he reminded the disciples that just as God was sovereign in Judas, so he would be sovereign in replacing Judas. Peter is unwaveringly confident in both the inspiration of God's word and in the sovereignty of God. But thirdly, he's also confident that the scriptures point to Jesus. After Luke adds a a parenthetical reminder in verses 18 and 19 about what happens to Judas and, and how he dies, Luke then resumes with Peter's speech in verse 20. For it is written in the book of Psalms, Peter says, may his camp become desolate and let there be no one to dwell in it. That's a quote from Psalm 69. And... Let another take his office, which is a quote from Psalm 109. And church, it's not any coincidence that both Psalm 69 and Psalm 109 are quoted in the Gospels, alluded to many times in the Gospels in reference to Jesus, pointing to Christ. In fact, Psalm 69 has the rare distinction of being one of only three Psalms that is alluded to in all four Gospels. The part of Psalm 69 that's alluded to so often is the part about Jesus as he hangs on the cross being offered sour wine to drink. In Psalm 69, verse 12, David writes, They gave me poison for food, and for my thirst they gave me sour wine to drink. Now, Psalm 69 is an imprecatory psalm. We didn't cover one of those this summer when we went through the Psalms, but the imprecatory Psalms are those in which the psalmist prays that God would bring judgment and punishment on his enemies that are pursuing him. And in the context of Psalm 69, David is being attacked and antagonized by his enemies. 
They're pursuing him. They're seeking to do him harm. And he's asking God to bring judgment on them. But both the Gospels and Psalm 69, both the Gospels use of Psalm 69 and Peter's use of Psalm 69 here in Acts chapter 1 show us that it is Jesus who is pursued by his enemies. As he makes his way to Jerusalem, as he's falsely accused by the Pharisees and scribes, as he endures the trial, the, the, the mock trial by the Sanhedrin and then by King Herod and then by Pontius Pilate. And then as he carries his cross to Golgotha and is crucified by the Roman soldiers. And so it stands to reason that, that Judas, who obviously turns out to be an enemy of Jesus, that he, as an enemy of Jesus, is now the enemy that is spoken of in Psalm 69, which Peter quotes in verse 20 of Acts 1, may his camp become desolate, that no one may dwell in it. David, David's prayers, uh, he, he prays that the camp of his enemy would become desolate. That's what he's praying in precatory against his enemies. That, that the camp of his enemy would be desolate and that no one would dwell there. But since this psalm foreshadows the crucifixion with David as a type of Christ, a shadow of the future eternal king Jesus, then the enemy of David is also a shadow of the enemy of Jesus, who in this text is Judas. Peter says here that the scriptures, that, that the Holy Spirit spoke beforehand through the mouth of David had to be fulfilled. And one of the things that had to be fulfilled is that Judas's camp would become desolate so that no one would dwell in it. Well, did that happen? Look back at the parenthetical thought from Luke in verses 18 and 19. Now this man acquired a field with the reward of his wickedness. That's the 30 pieces of silver. That's the blood money that he got for betraying Jesus. A field would be acquired with the reward of his wickedness. And falling headlong, he burst open in the middle and all his bowels gushed out. And it became known to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem so that the field was called in their own language, Akeldama, that is the field of blood. Now, parenthetically, if you are concerned about solving apparent contradictions in Scripture and you're worried about the uh, apparent discrepancy between Matthew's account of Judas's death and Luke's account of Judas's death here in Acts 1, don't be worried. For all of the apparent discrepancies in Scripture, they are all solvable, and there is an answer for every one. According to Matthew, Judas throws 30 pieces of silver back at the priests and the scribes there in the temple and he goes out and he hangs himself on a tree. According to the story in Acts, the 30 pieces of silver are used to acquire a field and Judas falls into the field and dies. Is that contradictory? Well, only if you assume that Judas buys the field himself. And not the priests who take the blood money and buy the field on his behalf. And only if you assume that it's impossible to imagine that there's a tree in this field on which he hangs himself and from which he eventually falls and his body bursts open in the field. And so all that Judas leaves, all that is his camp, to use the words of Psalm 69, all that's left is this field of blood. Akeldama, 
they called it. And because of the tragedy of Judas's betrayal, and because of the violent death that he endured there, it became a place of desolation, such that no one would ever dwell there. And for centuries, it became a place where the non-Jews, the Gentiles, were buried. And to this very day, it is a place of many burial caves. That scripture concerning Judas, concerning Judas had to be fulfilled. But so did the other one concerning Judas from Psalm 109. Let another take his office. And again, in the context of Psalm 109, David was praying that, that God would bring punishment and judgment on his enemies. And he says in Psalm 109 verse 8, May his days be few, and may another take his place. In other words, Lord, get rid of him. Get rid of my enemy. Let someone else take his place. And Peter tells us that this verse, like the verse from Psalm 69 earlier, refers to the enemy of Christ. May another take his office. May another replace him. Now, a really quick but needed word here for interpreting Old Testament passages in light of New Testament revealed truth. Sometimes, something that we know has occurred because of New Testament revelation finds an echo or a shadow in the Old Testament that the original readers of the Old Testament probably never would have seen. An example of that here is that the original readers of Psalm 69 would probably never have interpreted that imprecatory psalm as anything other than David praying that God would bring punishment on his enemies in that time and in that place. But as we've seen, all of the Gospels and Luke here in Acts chapter 1 say that this alludes and points to Jesus. Call it typology, call it a Christocentric hermeneutic, whatever you call it, its primary focus is on the application of the text rather than the interpretation of the text. And so when we read the imprecatory Psalms, for example, our application of them is not so much to seek to follow David's example and pray for God to punish our enemies, but rather to see in David's enemies the enemies of Jesus and to be reminded that the cross and those who carry it will always be opposed. How did Peter get that about Judas from Psalm 69 and Psalm 109? How, how did he get that? We, we don't know. We're not told, but I like to think that perhaps this was part of that 40-day Bible study that we looked at last week, where Jesus, between his resurrection and his ascensions, his ascension, opened up the scriptures to them to show them, as, as Luke tells us in his gospel account, <clears throat> to show them over these 40 days that everything written about him in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms point to him. All of it points to Jesus. So the disciples were given, they were they were literally discipled in and, and maintained a Christocentric view of the scriptures that they point to Jesus. So as a result of that, now someone must take Judas's place. 
Since that was written about Judas, that must now be fulfilled. So Peter, in verses 21 and 22, gives the criteria for an apostle. So one of the men who have accompanied us during the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning from the baptism of John until the day when he was taken up from us, so his earthly and public ministry, he says one of these who meets this criteria he says, must become with us a witness to his resurrection. One of them must replace Judas. To Peter, this was non-negotiable. How can Peter be so confident that this is so necessary? First of all, because Psalm 109 points to Jesus and the enemies of David are the enemies of Jesus. This points to Judas and so one must take his office. But secondly, Jesus during his earthly ministry, had told the disciples when they were in this very same room six weeks earlier, as they celebrated Passover and as he instituted the Lord's Supper that we just celebrated, Jesus looked at them in that setting and said, as is recorded by Luke in his gospel account, Luke 22, you are those who have stayed with me in my trials. And I assign to you as my father assigned to me a kingdom that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom and sit on thrones judging the 12 tribes of Israel. Something new was happening. Israel as a national physical kingdom was being superseded now by a new spiritual Israel. A new kingdom. And in this new kingdom, the 12 tribes of Israel would be judged not by the 12 patriarchs, not, not, not by the, the, the seeds of Jacob, but those 12 tribes would be judged by the 12 apostles of the church. So there had to be 12 to judge the 12 tribes of Israel. And of course, as we saw just a few months ago when we concluded our study of the book of Revelation, that new Jerusalem in the eternal state that will come down out of heaven from God and will be the residence of every believer in Christ of the ages, that new Jerusalem will have 12 foundations and on those 12 foundations, we're told, will be 12 names of the 12 apostles of the Lamb. So there was an eschatological purpose in them restoring the number from 11 to 12. And so they had to replace Judas with someone else. And so for these reasons, Jesus said, this must happen. We must replace Judas with a qualified person. So what does the early church do? They, they, um, they do what Peter says. They look among themselves. Who meets this criteria? They find two that meet the criteria. Joseph called Barsabbas, who was also called Justice, and Matthias. And then they prayed. So here again, we see the early church devoting themselves to prayer, defined by that. You, Lord, verse 24, you, Lord, who know the hearts of all, show which one of these two you have chosen. So here again, we see them defined by their confidence in God's sovereignty. Lord, you know the hearts of all. So just show us the one that you've already assigned to this task. 
And they demonstrate their trust in God by casting lots. Casting lots would be the equivalent of flipping a coin today. But that was a common practice for the Israelites in the Old Testament. And even at times encouraged by Yahweh to help the Israelites discover what God's will was on a particular important decision. It was not so much a a game of chance, as we might think it is, as it was a demonstration of their confidence in God's sovereignty. Because chance didn't determine the way the lots fell. God did. God is the one who ordained that. But it is interesting to note that this is the very last instance of casting lots that we find in the scriptures. And nowhere are our followers of Christ encouraged in this, uh, in this manner after the, the Pentecost, which comes next. Because what we get at Pentecost is so much better than casting lots. We get the Holy Spirit of God. And so as believers in Christ, as followers of Christ today, we determine the will of God by searching the scriptures and by leaning on the Holy Spirit for wisdom, discernment, and guidance. But their casting of lots here in Acts 1 demonstrates yet again that they trusted God and that God was going to work out his plan even through the means of casting lots. And so when the lot fell on Matthias, they numbered Matthias among their number with the 11 apostles because they took that as God sovereignly ensuring that his purpose and his plan would not be thwarted. They had an unflappable confidence in God's infallible word and in God's unstoppable purposes. If God's word said it would happen, it must happen. It was a certainty. They, they trusted unwaveringly in God's word. They, they, they trusted that, that no matter how bad it got, how difficult it got, and no matter how seemingly chaotic and out of hand things seemed, God's purposes would not be thwarted. They knew that God's sovereign purposes were categorically unstoppable. Now imagine being given a mission and stepping out in that mission so grand as the one that Jesus gave the apostles to be his witnesses here, there, and everywhere without a confidence in God's word or in his sovereignty. Imagine that. What if you weren't sure that this was God's word? What if you couldn't trust that what it said was true? What if God was impotent to stop his purposes from being thwarted? And what if you couldn't trust that what he said was going to happen was really going to happen? And what he promised to do, he would really do. How could you possibly step out in faith and run that race? But that's not the story of these earliest believers. They had an unflappable confidence in God's word and in God's character that his purposes would not stop, be stopped. And so beginning at Pentecost, as we'll see, they started running their race. And church, we too, if we are going to faithfully and fervently 
engage in the mission that he's given us and run with the baton that's been passed to us, we too need an unflappable confidence in God's infallible word and God's sovereign that his purposes cannot and will not be stopped. And we can trust that the God of the Bible is sovereign, that what he has ordained to pass will come to pass. His eternal plans and purposes cannot and will not be stopped. Church, let's grow. Let's grow in that. Let's grow in our confidence in God's holy and inspired word, that his word is inspired and infallible and inerrant, and that what we find on the pages of Scripture is truth and only truth, unadulterated, unfiltered, unstained, unshakable, unalterable truth. Let's believe that this is the very breath of God because it is. And let's grow in our confidence in God's sovereignty that both in the good times and in the bad, we can know that nothing is going to disrupt or change God's sovereign plan, which is always for our ultimate good and his ultimate glory. And let's encourage one another in both of these areas We're all going to encounter times when our confidence in God's word and our confidence in God's sovereignty will wane. And we will flirt with doubts on both. And so we need one another to remind us what this book is and who the God is who gave it to us. So last week we were given the baton. Be my witnesses here, there, and everywhere. This week, we got our lane assignment. Now our lane is marked out for us. We know where to run. Obedience to Jesus. Unity and being in one accord in the church. Devoted to prayer. And an unflappable confidence in his word and his sovereignty. And next week, we're going to get fueled up for the race. As the Holy Spirit descends on the disciples and empowers them for mission. Let's pray. Father, we do plead with you, as we are sure the early disciples pleaded with you as they gathered in that upper room, awaiting the Holy Spirit. God, we pray that you would cause us to be a people who are obedient to you, that we grow in our obedience to you. Father, if there are those among us who are living out actively, disobediently to you, Father, would you bring them back to trusting you and loving you enough to obey you? May we remember, Father, that we cannot earn our righteousness by being obedient, but we are obedient out of our love for you. So help us to grow in our love for you. Help us to grow in our unity in the church, to be united in mission to be united in our love for Jesus above all else. Father, help us to be devoted to the prayers. And Father, would you give us an unflappable confidence in your word and the fact that your purposes can never be stopped. No matter what we're going through in life, no matter what roadblocks seem to stand in the way of the mission that you've put us through, you will build your church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. And so, Father, remind us of where you're taking us and what the finish line is and remind us that you will cause us to persevere to that very end. Father, thank you for this time. We pray this in Jesus' name.
Amen.